Well, now we're going to turn our attention to the Word of God. Uh, we do this each week. Uh, lately, for the last few weeks, we've been working through the book of Jonah. And so today we are in Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. Uh, if ever you forget your Bible, we have them out on the tables as you come in. You're welcome to grab one of those. Uh, I'm going to pray one more time just for our time in the Word, and then uh, we'll dive in and see what God has for us. So uh, join me again, please. Uh, Lord, thank you for this time where we get to devote our attention to your Word. I pray, God, that it would be a fruitful time. Uh, Lord, help us to understand you more. Help, on, help us to understand ourselves more. I pray, God, in light of what we find here in Jonah, that there would be uh, universal uh, truths that would uh, impact our lives today. And God, that you would give us open minds, open hearts to uh, hear that and understand that. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin uh, this morning with a couple of uh, quick stories that are um, they're not really happy stories. Uh, the first one uh, comes from an email that I received just a few weeks ago from a woman that uh, Don and I knew through marriage preparation. We did a marriage prep course for a number of years, and we met her and her fiancé at the time. Um, she emailed me, though, to, to share that, sadly, her, her husband, they'd been married for a few years, had asked for a separation, and that he was, he was leaving her, and that also he was leaving the church, that he had he decided that uh, he no longer wanted anything to do with faith, and... Um, and of course, when, when you hear stories like that, when you're, you naturally ask questions, questions run through your mind, such as, you know, I mean, this was a guy who would come to faith before meeting her in marriage preparation. We talked a lot about faith, seemed to have a genuine walk with the Lord. And yet now the, the question is, uh, Lord, what am I to make of this? Was his, was his faith real? Uh, was his repentance at the, the time real? How am I to understand someone who, who was walking with you and now, and now isn't? Uh, another, another story is, is similar. Uh, it's from a family that we knew years ago. Uh, a man, also a, a, a husband, this time a father, who, who left his family. Uh, this time, still called himself a Christian, but wanted nothing to do with the church. Again, we found ourselves wondering. We, we, we'd known this man for a while. He'd come to Christ in his teens. He'd walked with the Lord for a number of years, been married for over 15 years. And so the questions that I'm asking myself is, what, you know, what, what happened there? Was that repentance ever genuine? Is his faith genuine now, even though he's walking in sin? How are we to understand this? If you've been involved in the church for any length of time, there's probably some stories like this that you know of those that have at one point seemed to confess faith and been walking with the Lord and then have fallen away. The reason that I'm asking these questions and sharing these stories is because um, this story is actually the story of Nineveh. Uh, we are in a series of, of Nineveh, which means we're looking not just at Jonah, where Nineveh repents, but also at the book of Nahum, where God brings judgment upon the city of Nineveh. And, and the difference between those two is only about 100 years. So today we're at the, the moment in Jonah's story where, where the whole city repents. It's fantastic. It's, it's wonderful. We're going to see how wonderful it is. But in light of the larger picture, which we're just sort of looking ahead to, because we're going to hit Nahum in a couple of weeks, we should be asking ourselves some big questions about repentance itself. Like, how do we know if it's real? How do we explain what went on with the Ninevites? What can we look to in their expression of, of repentance to help explain whether it's superficial or real? And, and how should we examine our own lives in the same way? So that's what we're going to get into today. Really, the big topic of repentance in light of what we see here in Jonah. So I'd like to read uh, Jonah chapter 3 to begin with. 
You can follow along or just listen. Uh, we'll have the uh, verses up on the screen as I work through them in, in a moment. So for now, here is God's word to us this morning. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose, arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So that's God's word to us this morning. And we have uh, one key idea with three components that's going to kind of guide our time, uh, all to do with repentance. So here's the key idea. Those who truly repent, believe in the coming judgment of God, turn from their sin, and persevere in faith. Those three things. We're going to look at each one in turn. Uh, beginning with number one, to repent, you must believe in the coming judgment of God. This is one thing that's integral to the, the story of Jonah and really to the Bible itself. Uh, we see this, this coming judgment of God as a driving force behind the narrative of Jonah. We see it in the very beginning in chapter one and then here again in chapter three. Uh, back in chapter one, uh, God says this to, uh, to Jonah. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And there God is saying, look, I've, I've seen their evil, and, and my judgment is coming. That's the implication of the text. It's a warning. Now, in chapter 3, it's almost identical. Uh, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah gets a do-over, but the message does not change. Uh, God is clearly planning to judge the entire city because of its evil and sinful ways. Now, this raises some questions about the, the justice of God. Is this just? Is this fair? Is this right for God to do this? Is it appropriate and right for God to wipe out an entire city because of their sin? Is any consequence for sin really necessary? Well, the short answer to those questions is that in light of the magnitude and destructive nature of sin, God's consequences for it are both just and appropriate. Specifically, when it comes to Nineveh, the, the, the depth of their evil and violence, God's judgment is not only just, it's long overdue. And we're going to examine the judgment of God, kind of the details and nature of God's judgment uh, in much greater detail when we get to Nahum. Because in Nahum, God actually brings destruction upon the city. But in this text, the focus is not really on the judgment itself, but rather on how God opens the door of mercy to these people. And he does it by sending Jonah to warn them about the judgment that is coming. See, the, the Ninevites, at this point in time, the, the door to God's mercy is closed because they're not aware of their sin. 
They're willfully blind to it, and they're not aware of the coming judgment of God. Right? That's why Jonah is reluctant to go and tell them, because he still doesn't like the Ninevites. He doesn't want them to know about that. He doesn't want that door to be opened. The first step, humanly speaking, in terms of receiving the mercy of God, is to acknowledge the fact that there is judgment against sin. I mean, God works before that to open our heart, but humanly speaking, it's when we see the coming judgment of God and begin to respond, that is where repentance begins. And this, I mean, this just makes sense. Anytime we see a peril or we see some danger coming away, that is when we look to be saved. Uh, it's, we don't dial 911 until something happens in the home, until we, we see the fire or something. Then we call, right? We need help. Before that, we didn't know that we were in danger. But it's when we see the coming danger, then, then we respond and we have an opportunity to, to ask for God's mercy. Jonah understood this fully. In fact, that's why his preaching is so very lame. I mean, right? We see that, right? His, it's, it's so weak. I mean, look at what he says. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Uh, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. We see how big it is. Three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, this is his entire sermon, five, five words, yet 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. I don't even know, the exclamation point is probably not there in the Hebrew. He maybe didn't even yell it. He might have just mentioned it casually. Now, the amazing thing is that, that they respond, but, but what we see here is that even though he didn't give a lot of detail, even though so much was missing, he had the essential truth. He shared just enough to be obedient to God. He didn't want to end up in the ocean again, right? He knew, okay, I got to tell them. I got to go. Just enough, but that was enough for the door of God's mercy to crack open. For them to hear that truth. They had to hear it. That God's judgment was coming and then they were able to respond and they repented in a big way. I mean, a massive, amazingly. And we're going to look at that in the second point. But before we get there, I think we don't want to miss the implications that this first point has for us in terms of the mission and the calling that God has placed on us. And by us, I mean the church. If you're here this morning, you're a believer. Uh, you are not just someone who has received the good news of God, but you are also someone who's been called to go and share it. Just like Jonah. God has said, Jesus has said, go and make disciples. Teach them all that I have commanded. We, we have good news for all the people of the world, but there's a bad news that is included in that good news. And that makes it tough for us to share. Gospel does mean good news, but the beginning part of that is the reality that each human being apart from God is in sin. And that there is a coming judgment against sin. In fact, there is an eternal judgment against sin in a place called hell, which is the eternal judgment of God. Now, the truth of the gospel includes that truth. And the pattern of sharing the gospel that we see in the New Testament includes that truth as well. All of the, the apostles, the New Testament church, they share both. That look, there's a reality to sin, but then once we know that, we, we can appreciate all that Jesus has done for us to atone for, to make up for that sin. It's said most concisely, I think, in Romans 6.23, where you see the dynamic between the bad and the good news. Uh, here, Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. Not just momentary death, but eternal death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The reason that we might appreciate, that we might see our need for Jesus is because we feel the weight of our sin. And that we, we see what Jesus did. That, that the, 
The judgment of God was coming and Jesus stepped in front of it for us on the cross so that we would not have to suffer. We can see this is true. It's not unclear in the Bible. The challenge for us, though, is that, I mean, no one likes giving bad news, right? We're always reluctant to give any kind of bad news to people. It makes us feel uncomfortable or awkward. I was reminded of this a few weeks ago. I was in a, an HR training seminar session thing at Northview. All the pastors were there, and there was a man named Trevor Thronis, who was like a HR consultant, really great guy. Um, he goes to all sorts of big companies and they bring him in to consult on their, their team dynamics. And he was sharing that very often when he goes into a, a team setting there, all the team leaders will be there, the managers, uh, very often someone will share, look, there's, a, there's an underperforming employee that we'd like your help with. And he'd say, well, tell me about it. And so they go through all the ways in which this employee is clearly not doing what they should or aggravating people, all you know, sorts of bad things. And so he would say to them, well, you know, what are their recent reviews like? And the, the team leader at that point would say, well, they're not bad. They're, they're pretty good. And he would say, have you talked to them about these, these critiques, these criticisms here? Not exactly. Well, why not? Well, you know, I, I didn't think it would be very nice to share with them. All, I didn't want to come down hard on them. And, and he would point out, which is pretty obvious when you hear about the situation, um, that's actually not nice for them. It's not kind to keep that kind of criticism back from them. For one thing, it's not kind to the rest of the team. That's clearly having to make up for this person who's not doing what they should. But it's not even kind for them. I mean, there are areas they clearly need to grow. And you are robbing them of that opportunity because you haven't told them the truth that they need to grow in these areas. Or, or maybe they aren't suited for this position. And they need to move on to somewhere else where they'll be a better fit. But instead of them being able to go and build a new career, they're, they're here for a time. They're probably going to get fired. That's not kind. That's, that's not nice. Withholding that bad, new, bad news is not a good thing for them. In fact, many times in life, the best thing that we can do for someone is to give them some bad news. Even if they don't agree. Even if they get upset. Even if they turn on us personally or even if it threatens our relationship. And all of that can happen when we share the gospel with someone but it's not loving, it's not kind to keep someone in the dark about their sin. The challenge, though, is, is how do we do that effectively? How do, we, how do we share both the bad news and the good news of the gospel in a way that would really connect with people? See, Jonah is not a very good example of this. In fact, if you want to see a, a poor example of how to share the, the bad news and good news, we can look at Jonah. Because Jonah, if you think about it, his mindset was, I don't want the Ninevites to repent. I don't want them to heed this call. So what does he do? He gives a message that is unclear, that is harsh, and that is impersonal. Kind of like those guys on the side of the road with a big sign that says, God's judgment is coming, repent. And we walk by, but that doesn't, that doesn't help anyone. In fact, the sad reality is that the church has a reputation of being very judgmental of not sharing this good news, bad news with a lot of love. Uh, I was, came across an article this week from the New York Times, and the title of the article was, um, I, I've Raised My Children Without Any Sense of Sin. It was written by a woman who uh, was reflecting on the fact that she had raised her children. They didn't even know what sin is. Uh, she came from a Christian household, but a very judgmental a very harsh, fundamental Christian environment where someone, they, they were used sin to, to beat everyone down. 
She was constantly told how she wasn't good enough, how what everything that she wanted to do was not the right thing. She'd never measure up. There's no grace. There's no real gospel in her household. And so that led her to reject it completely, and, and we can understand why. That's not hopeful. That's not in keeping with the character of God. The sad reality, though, for those children is that they may never know, certainly from her, that there, there is a coming judgment. But see, for people to realize that, for them to understand that, we need to do it in a way that is, that is most loving. In fact, that's the call for us in the Bible, that there's many times in our lives when we would have a truth that we see clearly that someone needs to know, but that's not enough. It's not enough simply to know the truth. We need to share it in a compelling and loving way. Here's what we see in Ephesians 4.15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. What that means is that for us to, to grow in Christ's likeness, we will not just seek to know the truth, but we will seek to be loving, to communicate with the people around us in a way that is, that is not, probably rarely is it harsh. Most often will it be soft. The next verse we see there is more specifically to do with um, evangelism. Because here, this is a parable that Jesus is telling. And in the parable, uh, the story, the master it, is God. And his servants are his people that are going out. And the master has a banquet, which is like heaven, and wants people to come in. But notice the language. The master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. That word compel means that, that you... You work hard to explain things well. You make sure you have good answers. You're patient. You're articulate. You, meaning you, you share with people not just a bludgeoning message of God's judgment. You come and you, you share in a way that will connect with their heart and with their mind. This is a difficult thing to do. But it's one that we are called to do if we are to be faithful. If we are to be really loving and fulfill this mission of God. It's not just that we have to have the right heart. It's that we really do have to have a certain set of skills. Um, I, I heard of this, I thought this was sort of a joke at first, but I heard about this organization that uh, teaches med students uh, improv techniques. So like, you know, haha, comedy, improv, you know, that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> so they teach them these kind of techniques because they want them to be more empathetic, to, to be able to connect better with, with patients. And the man who uh, came up with this idea is uh, an actor that you might know. His name's Alan Alda, a Hawkeye from MASH. So he loves science, and in his later years, he's hosted a bunch of science shows, and he realized that scientists, they love their science, but they're not very good at explaining it to people, to, to laymen. And so he started this organization teaching scientists and, and doctors improv techniques. And here's a quote from him in terms of why he does this, the goals. He says, effective science communication happens when we use empathy. Communication is headed in the right direction when we pay more attention to what the other person is understanding rather than focusing solely on what we want to say. I'm not sure about you, but I can think of a whole lot of times when I have been most focused on what I want to say and I've not been listening very well to the person I'm saying it to. And not only has that meant that my communication has broken down, but I've hurt people in that way. See, what we see in the person of Jesus, in his interaction with people, is that he is always truthful, but he's also always loving. I mean, there are times when Jesus is very harsh with the Pharisees, very direct, 
He needs, they need to be confronted in their sin. That's the most loving thing for them. But there are so many other times, like the woman at the well when Jesus, he speaks the truth in her life, but he's so soft. See, there's some of us here that, that lean to one side or the other, that, that love the idea of confronting people in truth, but it means that we turn people off. But there's others of us who are so soft that we barely speak the truth. It gets so watered down that people don't hear what they need to hear, that there is judgment coming. Have you considered the fact that there is, in fact, judgment for sin? Not just for the people around you, but in your own life. Have, have, you, have you softened your heart towards that? Have you responded to that? And have you considered what would be the most loving way for me to share that with the people around me? Not the way that I would kind of feel like I want to, but to really know them, to empathize, to understand where they are, what hurts they maybe have in the past, and how I can articulate the, the bad news and the go good news of the gospel in a way that would really connect with them. Because the first point is true. To repent, you must believe in the coming judgment of God. But what we want for people is for there to be a response. This is the second point. To repent, you must turn from your sin. It's not enough just to hear the message, just to tell some of the message. What we really want is for there to be some response because the response of the Ninevites is, is pretty amazing. It's in keeping with what we see for, for those who truly repent. Uh, look at verses five through seven. Uh, they believed God. They believed the judgment was coming. Then they called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes, this is a universal symbol of, of grief and sorrow. Things are going bad in my life. Then he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call up mightily to God. Now, I'm not sure what to make of the livestock being covered in sackcloth. I don't know if they can actually repent. My sense is No. I think it's just a symbol, right? It's, it's the people saying, look, we are totally grieved by this. We really want everyone to know. Everyone's fasting. Everyone's mourning. And they don't just, I mean, this is the key. They don't just say this. They actually do things differently. They make a change in their life. Look at verses 8 and 9. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This really is the essence of repentance, the turning. Because we know that words are cheap, but actions, they, they're weighty. I mean, in all areas of life, this is true. For example, for those of us that go to the gym regularly, we know that this time of year, right, is a time where, I mean, the, the gym was full in January. Why? Because there's a lot of people that say, New Year's resolution, I want to get fit, I want to get in there, so I go in, all of my favorite machines are, are taken, right? There's the bow... Okay, I don't go to the gym. I don't know what they're all called. But, but the illustration still stands. You, you would go there, there'd be lots of people. I heard from others that this happened. Okay, but by February, uh, they're resolved. The words that they said, they're waning. Right now, because their actions, they're not keeping up with it. All the machines, the Bowflex and all that, they're now, um, they're free. Because it tells you something about someone's heart. If they say one thing, but they don't actually do it. It's the doing of it that demonstrates the conviction, the genuineness of your heart. And that's why with repentance, the turning from sin really gives evidence of a changed heart. In fact, it is the evidence, maybe no greater evidence is there of God's work in our lives than when we are actually turning from sin. The Ninevites, they, 
They did that to a certain extent. They actually changed their evil ways. They stopped being violent. You'll notice the word is to all of them. All of them were wicked. All of them are violent. It was in the, in the water in their culture. But when they changed, when they saw the coming judgment, when they made a change in their life, look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, right? Not just what they said, but what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. See, mercy is not getting what you deserve. They still deserve the, the punishment of God, but God spared them because he saw a change in their life and their heart. This connection between seeing the coming judgment, turning from sin and receiving the mercy of God, this is essential for humanity that we might have life and hope and joy, abundance, that we'd be freed from the consequences of sin. And I was trying to think of some illustrations that would, that would make this clear to us. Like, like turning from sin is, is if you know, you've been bitten by a poisonous snake and there's anti-venom there and you gotta drink it to, so that you'll live. Or, or turning from sin is like recognizing gangrene in a limb and you have to cut it off or else your whole body's gonna be infected. That's, I mean, that one's actually in the Bible, right? Gouge out your eye, cut off your hand if it leads you into sin. But then I kind of thought, you know, why do we need to be convinced about this? Isn't it obvious to us that there are long-lasting, immediate and long-lasting consequences for sin, for unconfessed sin, sin that we are harboring, sin that we are keeping to ourselves? We tend to take sin lightly. We pretend that all is well. You do it, I do it. I can look back on my life and see many times when, when I've been walking, after coming to faith, I've been walking as a Christian, living as a Christian, and yet there were areas of my life that were in sin that I kept in the dark, I kept the door closed. And whenever I would hear a sermon or read a text about repentance, I would take that and I would apply it to the other sins that I felt more comfortable you know, sharing with people and confessing that I wanted to deal with, but there were other ones that I kept, I kept in the dark. And I thought that I would be able to grow and, and flourish even though there was, there was a cancer within me that was just undermining all of the spiritual growth I was hoping for. Many times in my life, by God's grace, even those sins that I did not want to come to light, they came to light. I was caught out in my sin, or, or God brought it to light in some way. And in that moment, I was, it was devastating. It was a moment of crisis. I felt vulnerable. I felt exposed. I felt shameful and, and broken like a failure. Everything that I didn't want to happen, that's why I kept the door closed. But the truth, the truth was and the truth is that it's at that moment that we truly experience God's power and his grace. It's at that moment that, that I turned fully in many areas of my life from sin and turned fully to Jesus to receive his mercy, to understand the depth of my own sin and the depth of his love for me. It was his grace in my life to bring that sin to light. And sometimes that does happen just, just by us being caught out in our sin. Sometimes, though, it's, it's the Spirit of God that just, we can't go through another day continuing to lie, to kin, continuing to keep things in the dark. We have, to, we have to say something to the people around us. It's the best thing for us. It's the only way to live a life of, of growth in godliness. And see, the good news of the gospel 
is that when we feel that, that point of conviction, when we feel the weight of our sin, we don't have to, we don't have to figure it out. The gospel is not, now that I've seen my sin, I've seen the judgment of God, I got to fix myself up. And then I come to God, I say, okay, I sorted everything. Please work in my life. That's not it. The good news of the gospel is that God, God catches us in those moments of greatest weakness. And his message to us is, I, I love you. It's that I, I sent my son to die for you so that you would not have to try to figure this out on your own. See, that's the, the joy and the life that is in repenting, in identifying sin, in turning from it, in receiving in that same moment the grace of God, the power of God that sets us free from sin and then, and then allows us to live a life not of sinlessness, but of a continual repentance and turning towards God, of, of growing in godliness. But that's our third point. That, that to come to a point of repentance is one where we do confess we do turn, but, but we also persevere. Point three, to truly repent, you must persevere in faith. This is the sobering part of the story of the great city of Nineveh. The part that often gets missed. Because Jonah has got a big fish in it. Someone gets swallowed. It's got a lot of excitement. Nahum is, <laughs> there's a lot of judgment. We're going to get there in, in a few weeks. But it's important that we see the story of this city in its, in its fullness. See, on the day of, of God's mercy, there was celebrations in Nineveh, understandably so. They were about to get judged for their sin and God spared them. You can imagine them on that 40th day when the sun came up, everything looked well. Praise God. They were celebrating, they were singing, they were high-fiving each other, right? They were saying, look, I'm, I'm always gonna follow this God. This God is the best. But that wasn't true. For many of them, that was not true. Though they professed faith in some way, they, they fell away. In, in 40 years, 50 years or so, they, they went back to their evil ways. They went and they, they besieged Israel, God's people. They took over Israel. They killed thousands. They took many into exile. And then in about another 50 years, the prophet Nahum was sent to, to proclaim God's judgment again on Nineveh. And look at what he says. This is a, a preview in chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, speaking of Nineveh, God says, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. We have to be careful that we don't treat Nineveh as one individual person. It's not one heart. There's Thousands and thousands of hearts. But the very fact that, that this nation, this city, has gone on to do these kinds of things tells us that there were a great many individuals that turned back to their violent and sinful ways. That their repentance was not lasting. That their faith did not persevere. And I put faith in quotes on purpose. Because whenever someone goes back to a sinful lifestyle in a persistent and consistent way, it casts doubt on their faith. You might say, but Matt, I, th I thought that once saved, always saved. I thought that God is the author of my salvation and that nothing can separate me from his love. And the answer to that is yes, absolutely. Yes, we see that again and again in the Bible. And the evidence that there is genuine faith in a person's life is that there's fruit. 
that there's a continual direction towards the Lord, not perfectly, not that there's never any sin, but that, that if you are a believer, that there's a pattern in your life of bringing sin to light, of, of seeking the mercy and salvation of God. In fact, there's a lot in the New Testament, not just about the importance of coming to faith, but of persevering in our faith by the grace and power of God. Here's one text, just to give us kind of the, the language of how it's expressed. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, or not Paul, whoever wrote Hebrews, uh, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now notice the language there, there's running. I don't run either, but if I did, if I jogged, I know there's sweating involved, right? I hear, I see people going by, like, oh, it looks like a lot of work. There's always, what it's saying is, look, if you were to live the Christian life, you should expect to work hard. What kind of work? Work for my salvation? No. No, Jesus did that. He, only he could do that on the cross. Taking the, the infinite wrath of God, stepping in front of the judgment that is coming, taking it all upon himself. But in light of that ultimate work, we are then called to a sanctifying work where God works in us. We see that there in the text. Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. It's he and, and his spirit that works in us so that we would continue to identify sin, that we'd turn from it again and again. That's that's the pattern. When that pattern breaks down, when we persist in sin, that's when we have reason to be concerned. Now, we have to be very careful that, that we, never, we never think it's our job to proclaim judgment on someone else's faith. Genuine or not genuine, that's, that's not our job. We don't know people's hearts. But what is our job is to be loving and to be in prayer for those around us to examine our own hearts, to see where we have been ignoring some sin that needs to be repented of. And for the people in our lives that, that seem to, to be out of a pattern of repentance, out of a pattern of pursuing Jesus, we need to be able to pray for them in the right way. Those men that I mentioned at the beginning of, of the sermon, one of them says that he's still a Christian, even though he doesn't want anything to do with the church. The other says, I'm done with faith altogether. When I think of them and pray for them, I pray for them in the same way. I pray, Lord, I pray that these men would, would see the reality of sin, the weight of sin. They don't see it right now, God. They are both persisting in sin. They're ignoring the coming judgment. God, I don't know their, their faith. I don't know their hearts. You know that, Lord. But because I see that they are wayward, because they're walking in the wrong direction, God, I pray that they would repent. I pray that their faith would be sure. I pray that because I, I don't want to assume that all is well when, when we don't know for sure. See, the salvation of Nineveh, it was an amazing experience. I mean, to have been there would have, would have been incredible. Everyone around, like in the surrounding area, would have heard about what happened. Did you hear what happened? The God of the Hebrews was going to judge Nineveh. They all repented. Even their cows repented, apparently. And they were all saved. It's amazing. It's an amazing experience. Many of us have had those kinds of experiences. When we've come to Christ, when we've been in prayer, we've felt the presence of God. That's a great thing, a fantastic thing. But what we need to recognize is that it should never be a one-time thing. If there's something in our past, a, a moment of decision, praise God for that. But if we're always looking back and saying, that's, that's the hope I have for my salvation, we're missing what the Bible says about today. Today, we should examine our life. Today, we should look for fruit. We should be in prayer. 
We should be asking God, would you help me, Lord, to strive for godliness that I might continue to reveal the work that you've done in me? See, this is repentance in its fullness. It is for those who truly believe in the coming of judgment of God. We see it. We know there's something coming our way. We, we then turn from our sin and then we persevere in faith. And this morning is yet another opportunity to do that. This morning is a time for those that, if you've never repented of your sin, if you've, if you've just been around for a while, you've been wondering, you've never really felt that conviction that you feel a stirring of the Lord, today is a day to repent, to turn from that sin, to, to accept Christ, to say, Jesus, I believe that, that you died for my sin, that my only hope is in you. But for those of us who've done that already and have repented of sin many times, today is still that day when there may be something, some area of blindness that we've just not wanted to look at, some new thing that we, we didn't see at all, and yet by God's grace, the Spirit of God is right now saying, there's, there's something you need to speak about with the Lord and with people in your life. That's a good day. That's, a, that's every day for us as believers because God loves us because he wants for us to grow in godliness, which means that we know, the, we know the bad news and the good news. We know the answer and we persist in it by his grace, by his power. So let's pause for prayer together and then let's respond and celebrate who God is. Join with me. Lord God, thank you for this word. Thank you for this word, Lord, of, of uh, things that happened thousands of years ago. Lord, in the life of Jonah, in the life of the Ninevites, a people in a culture so far removed from us, and yet, Lord, Within that text, we have so much for us today. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would indeed convict us of our sin. Lord, help us to see those areas where we, we are turning a blind eye. Help us to see the, the magnitude, the weight of sin, and help us really, Lord, to see the, the depth and breadth of your love. That in sending your son to go to the cross, to die the death that we deserve, you have opened the door to mercy. God, that we might repent with full assurance that, that Jesus, you love us that all of our sins are taken away and that because of your power, because of your spirit, renewing our heart, we can walk in repentance day in, day out until we get to heaven. Lord, I pray that that, that would be our joy, that we would see that that is life-giving for us to be continually on our knees and then continually lifted up by your grace. I pray, Lord, that today would be a day where we draw nearer to you because we have repentant, humble hearts. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to respond. We do this uh, each week. Uh, the band's going to come up.